Let's pray together. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We're so thankful that we dwell in a world in which our God is not only our King, but our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us opportunity to serve you and to take part in the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth and eternally. And Lord, may it be that our goal in life will be to serve you in whatever we do and to hear from your spirit as he speaks to us through the word of God. We invite you to be present in each of our hearts and lives today, <clears throat> that this will be, as it were, the temple of God, and, and you will be our teacher and instructor and the one who will confirm to us the truth of who you are. And Father, I pray that as the word of God is proclaimed throughout this uh, church this morning, that you will be present in every class and in the service. And Father, as the word is proclaimed throughout the city of Reading and, and around the world this day, we ask that many, many souls will be brought into your kingdom and others will be strengthened in their walk with you. I thank you for your presence here and for each individual in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter eight. The whole section of Deuteronomy that begins with chapter 7 and goes through chapter 11 is a call to faith and obedience, specifically. And in understanding how this record applies to us, we have a wonderful parallel in this particular passage we're going to read now between what God commanded Israel and our Christian walk today. So if we could begin reading at verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig, dig, dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given to you. As we have well discovered over the past many months that we have looked at the life of Moses, the Exodus was not a 40-year vacation in a desert resort or anything like that. God had rescued this nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt in mass 
the whole kit and caboodle. He had brought them all out, regardless of their individual personal faith towards him. He brought them all out. And what we also discover as you read further in Scripture is they aren't the only ones who left because the Scripture tells us that the rabble also came. There were others who took advantage of Israel leaving to latch on and go with them into the wilderness. In the wilderness wandering, they had to establish a personal faith and obedience, develop a personal reality of who God is. As we know, soldiers often look really good on the parade ground, but true fighting men are made only under fire. It reminds me of George B. McClellan. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was one of the early commanding generals of the Army of the Potomac under Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. And McClellan knew how to parade troops. Oh, he knew how to parade troops. He knew how to make them look absolutely perfect, exquisite. They knew how to do exactly everything. But when he got into battle with them, it was a different story. He didn't know how to command men. He was always fearful and he was always believing he was outnumbered and outmanned and outgunned, even though he outnumbered the enemy two to one. He was a great parade ground commander. He was a lousy battlefield commander. When Israel first walked out of Egypt, you could be sure, certain that uh, most of the Israelites were swept up in the enthusiasm of, of going forth into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, whose God had performed these mighty miracles and, and brought disaster on Egypt and freed Israel. It was easy to be brought up in, or to be caught up in mass enthusiasm. But did each single Israelite man and woman have a personal walk with Yahweh? Did each one know individually that the Lord, He is God? Did they have a faith that would weather the storms of life? Well, that was what God was about to find out. And that's one of the reasons why the wilderness wandering took 40 years. This passage that we have read this morning specifically states that God purposely led them into the wilderness and allowed them to have difficulties for the for the ultimate purpose of humbling them and testing their hearts. Testing their hearts. God allowed them to be hungry. I mean, they didn't have to be hungry. God could have fed them along the way. He could have done all kinds of things to have fed them all along the way. But God allowed them to become hungry. And then He made them dependent upon manna. And the passage clearly teaches us that they didn't know manna, neither had their fathers known manna, nobody had ever heard of manna before. And of course, they had nothing to do with its daily appearance. There was nothing, they weren't even told to pray for it. God just gave it every day. There was manna. They needed it, and they could do nothing to produce it or to provide it. And so what did that teach them? Ultimate total dependence upon God. Where else could they go? There was no Mickey D's out there. there. There was no place to go, you know. Uh, there was no source of food except what God provided daily in the mornings. They could do nothing about it for themselves. They had to learn total dependence upon God, not only for their daily physical sustenance, but also they would learn that they had to depend upon the Word of God for their ultimate survival. We're told in this passage that their clothes didn't wear out. 
For us, that would be a kind of a plus and, an, and a minus. <laughs> Most of our clothes don't wear out either. <laughs> they just go out of style or we get tired of them. Betty Elliott, Betty Elliott in one of her tapes says, if you haven't worn it for a year, get rid of it. <laughs> Most of us don't, and that's why we have closets jammed to the walls. Maybe you don't, but some people do with clothes that haven't been worn, but you just can't quite see throwing it out or giving it away. But their clothes didn't wear out. And of course, they didn't have closets full of clothes. And what's also interesting is we're told their feet didn't swell in spite of the fact that they tr had to tramp through the wilderness for 40 years, covering hundreds of miles. Who knows how many miles they covered? Walking back and forth through the wilderness. And tramp they did. And that is bleak terrain over there. I mean, it's hot, it's dusty, it's rugged. Uh, it's wilderness. And that's where they walked for 40 years. They didn't walk down I-5 or through a nice grassy meadow. They walked through the desert. And yet, their shoes didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell. Amazing. Truly amazing. But we might say, yeah, that's great. God gave them food and he gave them clothing and he didn't let their feet swell. But why did he put them in there in the first place? You know, that wouldn't have been a problem if he hadn't led them out into this wilderness. Why did he put them through this ordeal? Did he put them through the ordeal because he didn't love them? Well, obviously, we all know the answer to that. In Hebrews 20, 12, in Hebrews 12, 6, we read that for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. You know, most of us don't like that verse. We like the verse that says, And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know? <laughs> and, and we don't like this whole idea that the Lord also scourges the sons and daughters whom he loves. And, and that's exactly what we're seeing. He loves Israel desperately. And that's why he's doing this because he loves them, not because he does not love them. The Lord disciplined Israel so that they would keep his commandments. I mean, he gave the commandments on Mount Sinai through Moses, and Moses brought them down, and they heard the commandments, and they said, yeah, sure, we'll do these things. But you know, the daily living pretty well grinds on after a while, and the promise you make in great enthusiasm is Moses is standing here with a shining face and these tablets that God has written on, it's easy to say, yeah, we'll do them. But then when it comes to the nitty gritty of every day of applying those laws to real life, suddenly it becomes a different story. And so it was for Israel. God knew that they had to know why they needed to obey these laws. Not only did they need to know why, because ultimately it would give them heaven, but it would give them the promised land here and would allow them to survive the ordeals of life. They had to know that obedience was necessary and that obedience needed to occur with a willing and an understanding heart. A willing and understanding heart. Doesn't mean we always understand everything God does, but we understand that he does it for our good, whatever it is he's doing. That was, of course, the hard way. Uh, that is a hard way, but the reward for their obedience was great. As we read there, in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, where he says the Lord's going to bring you into a good land and has all this food and all this water and all these good things are there in this land. It was an earthly picture of the eternal reward. 
And so theirs was a double reward, the reward of the land now and then of the land then. And in a way, we also experience that same double reward because as we walk the Christian life today and as we fellowship with one another, we get a small taste of glory. And if the church functions the way the church is supposed to function, the church ministers to its people and, and meets the needs so that, in effect, there are the vineyards and the olives and the pomegranates there and the springs of water are there so that people are emotionally, spiritually, and even physically uplifted by the church. And then, of course, ultimately, as we achieve uh, the promised land, the needs will be supplied every day by God. I think the parallel from this passage to our Christian walk is rel relatively obvious. God promises to meet our every need. But one of the things he does not promise is to make our way easy. He does not make that promise at all. And I, I've noted a couple of passages. You're, you're familiar with them, but let me just um, read them again this morning from James chapter 1. James, of course, be, it becomes a little ridiculous in, in what he says here in the second verse where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We have to look upon him as maybe some kind of a sadist or something, but that is, of course, not true. He's simply describing reality, and he's describing what it ought to be if our faith is in God and we know whom we are serving. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing in the sense of the spiritual walk. He goes on in verse 12 to say, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Most of us like the idea that Jesus died that we might have life. But we are a little fearful of some of the passages which teach us that we're to take up our cross and follow him. That there may be a price that we have to pay too on his behalf in order to become the sons and the daughters that are really prepared for his kingdom. To taste what Christ tasted in, in just a tiny, tiny way. To have the fellowship of his suffering whatever all that means. Peter also, of course, makes statements very similar to James. In the first chapter of 1 Peter, in verses 6 and 7, he says, similarly to James, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Peter uses that phrase there, that our faith, the testing is to prove that our faith is more precious than gold, he's using a, a profound illustration there because gold is the most noble of all the elements. Gold has been uncovered, that has been subjected to seawater, that's been under the soil and subjected to all of the acids of the soil for hundreds and even thousands of years. And you take it out and chip off the crust, whatever's formed in there, and there it gleams, as bright as it ever gleamed. 
Gold is totally unaffected by almost all substances. And as a result, it maintains its luster virtually, no matter what is applied to it. And so he's talking about gold being perishable. Well, it's perishable in that everything in this planet is perishable, ultimately. The scripture tells us in Peter that the earth will melt with a fervent heat, and of course that gold will be gone too. But if anything is imperishable in this life, it is gold. As long as this world exists, gold, and they, they uncover gold that's been in the ground, buried with some dead person for 5,000 years. There it is, gleaming like it always gleamed. It doesn't tarnish like silver does. And so when he says this, he's making a very powerful statement here about how our faith is to be proven until it's more durable even than gold. You and I also are often led into the wilderness. We're led in the wilderness that we might be humbled and that we might be tested and that we might be disciplined. That doesn't go over so well today in our society where we have kind of a idea that Christianity is to form a little cocoon around us so we can go through life rather insulated from the troubles of life. But it doesn't happen that way. God wants us to also know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is eternal. When God speaks forth his word, it lasts forever. We're told in Psalms, forever his word is settled in heaven. And when you think about that, it, it causes one to really wonder about these people who want to reduce the Bible to merely a book written by humans that may here and there, now and then, contain some kind of a thought of God, but no more so than maybe uh, any other book is inspired with some kind of divine thought of some sort. In the 19th century, this country was, was uh, beset by the impact of real liberal theology that was developing. Men like Henry Ward Beecher, who came out of a Calvinistic background but re rebelled against it and became a primary exponent of what we might call a kind of a social gospel and began to strip the word of, of the essence of what is truth. And, that be and he was the most powerful, well, not the most powerful preacher, but certainly one of the most popular speakers in the latter part of the 19th century. Fortunately, God raised up men like Finney and Moody and others to counteract that kind of teaching. But when, when someone loses a sense of the eternality of the Word of God and of the fact that we don't have something that contains the Word of God, we have the Word of God here in our hands, it makes a big difference as to how people respond to that kind of a message. It's easy for you and for me daily to be consumed with the needs and desires of our physical life to the point that we neglect that which is of greater importance, which of course is the eternal matters of life. I'm sure that it is for you as it is for me, things that I have to do keep piling in on me all the time. You know, I've got to get this done, I've got to get that done. This is leaking and that's broken and you know, something is always going on and it can just consume you. Let's turn to 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, Paul, in speaking to this one that he loved like his own son, in fact, calls him that, You therefore, my son, be strong in grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now that does not teaching monastic living. That's not saying we ought to go live up in a monastery someplace and ignore all the affairs of life. That is not what he's saying. He's using the word entangles, meaning that it's not that you don't take care of the things that in the physical life that need to be taken care of, but it's just that they don't absorb you. They don't dominate your life. You know, our lives have got to be ultimately aimed at, at serving God, and we do these other things out of, out of necessity. You know, the scripture teaches that a man who will not work and provide for his family is worse than an infidel. So there are things that we are required to do and we have to do, but it's, it's a difference in the attitude that we have towards them. Is this what we give our lives to or is it something we must do because it is right to do it, but our lives are given to that which is of God, that which is above and beyond? I think that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. The hardships of life bring to life what sort of people we really are. What kind of people are we? Hardship brings that about. Years ago, one of the professors I had uh, at Simpson Eons back told a story about how he had been converted before he went into the Navy and then in the Navy, one day he was doing a job in which he was using a big wrench and this wrench slipped and he slammed the wrench in his hands against the deck and, you know, just really smashed his hand. And his response to that was, mm, oh, ah, you know, this kind of thing. And the others were really, you know, the other sailors around were very impressed because they knew a blue streak would have come out <laughs> of all of their mouths. And, you know, he had been transformed. This is the work of Christ had changed him so that even though he was in pain, his response was not to curse the God who had created him, which most do. That's a changed life. It's a life that's changed through hardship. To, to have faith untested is really probably not to have real faith, faith at all. Faith must be tested. It must be tested by the fire of daily living. It discovers what kind of people we are whether we're so totally engrossed by the physical, as were many of the Israelites, so that when things got hard, they wanted to flee back. Do we want to flee back to the leeks and the garlics of Egypt? Do we want to flee back to the old way of life because it didn't seem as hard as our way of life now? Or do these trials prove that we have received the truth and that we're willing to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? For what purpose? Well, to honor Him, certainly, but also to receive the reward of the promised land. Let me turn to 1 John chapter 2. Again, this is a very familiar passage, but I think it's appropriate to what we're talking about this morning. 1 John chapter 2, reading at verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. 
Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. And they went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Profound verse that helps us to understand that there are in the church those who are not of the church. There are those who may look like good soldiers of Jesus Christ, but who are not. They are actually fifth column. <laughs> they are of the evil one, like Judas. And they are here, and I can re be reminded of my college days when there were some young people that seemed to be so on fire for Jesus, and, and they wanted to pray for the missionaries and all this stuff, and yet today they are so far away from God that it's incredible. And you wonder, you know, what, what is this? You know, what kind, of, what kind of a false garb were they wearing? Enough to fool most of us. But see, that's what the hardness produces. The hardness strips away facades and, and leaves one standing as he or she really is a good soldier of Jesus Christ or an enemy agent in the midst. And John says, they have gone out from us. When? In the hard times. You know, he says in the last hour, when persecution and trouble is, is upon the world and upon the church. I mean, you look at the persecuted church and how many non-believers or people who have pretended to be believers remain in the persecuted church. There was a whole issue that really tore up the church back in the, in the third century when the persecutions that swept the church drove many people to flee from the church. And then when the persecution was passed, they wanted back into the church. And, and there were two major schisms that, hurt, that damaged the church known as Novationism and Donatism. And in North Africa... They didn't want to allow people back into the church who had denied Jesus Christ. But the Roman church said, hey, you know, who are we to judge? Let them back in if they want to be back in. And this caused a split so that there actually was a dual church in North Africa, a church that followed the leading of Rome and a church that followed the leading of Novation or later Donatist. And so you had two bishops in, you know, in parallel positions within the church, one that stood for not letting back those who denied Jesus Christ, and the other said, hey, you know, let anybody back who wants in. One of the reasons for persecution lasting more than a moment is it drives out those who are not truly of the faith and keeps them out. Not that we all say, oh, good, let's have persecution. No, I don't think any of us likes the idea of persecution well, the capstone of this section of Deuteronomy is found in the 10th chapter. The 10th chapter, beginning at verse 12. This is one of the really beautiful and encouraging passages of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. 
Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Circumcise then your heart, stiffen your neck no more. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Show, so show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. It's really a powerful passage of Scripture. God is declaring to Israel who He is here. And, and as you read through this passage, what you discover is that He is talking about the necessity of faith and obedience. He is talking about the urgency of faith and obedience. And He's talking about the reward of faith and obedience. As you look through this passage of Scripture and you look at verse 14, what you have here is a statement of transcendence. A statement of the transcendent God. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven and earth and all that is in it. We have probed the heavens with our telescopes and with our radio telescopes out to a, a radius of something like 10 billion light years and have found no end to the universe. Distance is so incredible that the whole concept behind Star Trek is, is ridiculous. You know, even if you could fly at 10 times the speed of light, you wouldn't even dent the distances that are in the universe. I mean, when you consider the fact that the nearest star to the sun is four light years away, which means it takes you four years to get there at the speed of light. That's the nearest star. And so we're just going to flip through the universe, this quadrant, that quadrant, you know, hardly. And yet God is there in it all and above it all and beyond it all. At the end of the 18th century, there was a period known as the Enlightenment, which came upon Europe and America. And it was a time of, of great encouragement because Newton had discovered the law of gravity. Others thought, wow, other laws can be discovered and we can learn all the laws of this universe and we can learn the laws of human behavior and the laws of animal behavior and we can learn to predict and control everything. Hmm. Even to the po point where they developed a faith called deism whereby they demoted God from an eminent God who, who touches the lives of people to some distant reality who may be nothing more than Aristotle's prime mover. You know, just the force out there, you know, like in Star Wars, the force be with you. And this, this force out here, you know, which has put it all together, but is not anything you can know. All you have to do is know the laws which he has created. And this gave a very positive spin to everything. And, and, and of course, man became the measure of all things rather than God being the measure of all things. And we are still dealing with that today. The impact of the Enlightenment has been profound. Because in the 19th century, along came a man by the name of Charles Darwin who came up with this theory of evolution and liberal preachers all bought into that, including Henry Ward Beecher and many others. 
And that became the foundation of the social gospel. And you add that to the enlightenment thinking of the power of man to understand the universe and the laws of the universe. And you no wonder today in the 20th century, we're ruled by science. Science has the answer to everything. It's like, you know, once you learn how to clone a person, you've made him immortal because you just keep cloning the same person and you, the person becomes immortal, which is a ridiculous thought. But, you know, science will, I mean, you know, it's logical if cloning really works as far as cloning a human being. You know, if you clone a sheep, that's one thing. Sheep doesn't have a soul, but humans have a soul. Is God going to allow a soul to be attached to a cloned person if they ever clone a person? I don't know. I don't really want to find out. But in the 15th verse, what we have is a statement of his eminence. Eminence. The fact that he's here. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. The deists did not believe that God specifically loved anybody because that would imply that he knew you personally. And the idea of a personal God was totally thrown out. You know, people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, he was a great man and certainly he had his impact in this country and we can be thankful for the Declaration of Independence. But, but he was a man who cut everything out of the Bible that didn't fit with his idea. In fact, there is a Jefferson Bible and the Jefferson Bible has all the miracles removed because you see, to a deist, there is no such thing as a miracle because a miracle is a transgression of a law that God has set in place and he's not going to do that or he cannot do that. Take your personal definition, whichever you like. And as a result, you have a situation where you are alone in this struggle for life. And God is not here helping you. Oh, you can say your prayers if you want, but they're just bouncing off the ceiling, you know, like this. And, and they're not affecting God because he's too far away. It's a very, very lonely way. Oh, some would say, but that's a man's way to approach life. Yeah, right. As soon as you sit on the edge of your deathbed, you know, suddenly what it means to be a man changes. God is transcendent and God is imminent. And Israel needed to know that. And what was to be the response of Israel? Israel was to circumcise their hearts and to stop being stiff-necked. Cut away that which hardens the heart to God and bow the knee and walk in obedience. Because that is to show real strength and real manhood and real womanhood and real wisdom. And verse 17 displays the majesty of God. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, great and mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality and cannot take a bribe. So don't bother trying to just give him some little thing along the way and hope it all's well between you and your soul, with, you know, your soul and God because you gave him you know, a little tip along the way. God doesn't take any bribes. What Moses was saying, or God was saying to Israel through Moses, was that the only thing God accepts from you is your total person. Faith, body, soul, spirit, obedience. That's all that God accepts. Nothing else, nothing less. It's all or nothing. You know, so remember that old song in Oklahoma? With me, it's all or nothing. Is it all or nothing with you? Well, the implication of the song is a little different, but the idea is, is still good. <laughs> with God, it's all or it's nothing. There's no such thing as a halfway Christian. Oh yeah, back in, in uh, colonial New England, they created what was called the halfway covenant. You know, for those who couldn't quite make it to live a life of faith, but had been baptized and, you know, they, they could be halfway Christians. Oh, goody. <laughs> you know, that's like purgatory. And then in verse 18, he, it, it manifests one of the most powerful and important attributes of God, his justness. 
He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And other passages will tell us that he gives the rain on the just and the unjust alike. And we've experienced a great deal of that lately. And so we know that's true because it's rained on all of California, not just parts of California. And can make it hard for believers as well as for non-believers and be a blessing to believers as well as, as non-believers. What is interesting about this, notice the infinitives that are used in that first couple of verses. It says, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear? Next phrase, to walk in his ways and love him. To serve with all your heart and with all your soul. To keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. <laughs> you know, many people have this idea that God created the Ten Commandments for his good. So that he has a measure by which he knows when to slap us and when not to. No, the Ten Commandments and all the other auxiliary teachings in Scripture are for our good. It's the owner's manual. And if we don't follow the owner's manual, we burn up the machine. We wreck it. We put it together wrong. It doesn't achieve its purpose. And sometimes he's got to really put the screws on the people so that they'll pay attention to the owner's manual. How often is it even with us? It sometimes takes a hard time before we really get down to brass tacks to pray and to study the God, Word of God. Sometimes when trouble comes along, we really start searching the Word of God. Well, that's why he sent the trouble. Often we learn much better how to pray when suddenly it all dumps on us and we have nowhere else to go. Then suddenly we become real serious about prayer. That's why he does it. Because it's more important that we know the importance of the Word of God and more important that we learn how to pray than that we have a good time in life and that we always have good health and we always have wealth and all have, always have these other things. They are not the preeminent thing in life. And God makes that abundantly clear. He says in verse 20 of this Deuteronomy 10 passage, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and cling to Him. The Hebrew here is very clear. You shall adhere to Him. You shall stick to Him like glue. I mean, it's as if God totally permeates your being and there's no separating you and God. And you shall swear by His name. You, you shall vow by His name. You shall take your oath by Him that you will serve Him. From your mouth will come the, the commitment to God here and forever. He is your praise. He is your Elohim, your God. And he's done these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Sometimes, you know, I, I'm sure you are frustrated as I am at times that we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we beseech God and certain conditions don't seem to budge. It's almost like a, a you know, a, a, a big nut that's, that's rusted onto this bolt and it will not budge no matter what you do to it. Sometimes it just seems like that's the way it is. But in that prayer is process. God is processing us, even if it seems like heaven is not hearing, as if God is busy on another line, you know, and the answer doesn't seem to come. We are very, maybe I shouldn't say you are, but most people I'm familiar with are, tend to be a little bit on the impatient side. We want God to answer prayer yesterday, 
And sometimes the answer is much delayed because God has a greater purpose than the problem that we're praying for. Maybe in you, maybe in the person, maybe in whatever it, the situation is, God has a bigger purpose to accomplish. Sometimes we think we know what that purpose is, and so we pray accordingly, and then we say, God, you still haven't done anything. You know, what's the deal here? I, I think it behooves us to be aware of the fact that we cannot probe the mind of God to know all that He is thinking and all that He is planning. We can only see the surface. We can only see, as it were, the hinder part of God, as, as Moses saw just the afterglow of God af after God passed by the cleft in the rock where Moses was placed. Our job in life is not necessarily to always know what God is about, but to be obedient no matter what. Sort of like the military. You're not paid to think, you're just paid to obey. Well, God isn't that way. He doesn't say you're not paid to think. Uh, God wants us to think, but He wants us to trust and obey above everything else. Because He never fails and He never does a wrong thing. It's, I mean, the reason He never does a wrong thing is it's not possible for Him to do a wrong thing. Because He's perfect. He can't do anything that violates the attributes of His nature. And so we have no reason but to trust Him. And God made it so abundantly clear to Israel they had no reason but to trust Him because he had demonstrated in so many ways what he was about in delivering them from Egypt and carrying them through 40 years of the wilderness and giving them Transjordan, and now he's going to give them the Promised Land. What reason do they have to doubt? None. Well, the next section of Deuteronomy, which we don't have time to probe into today, though, begins with, with uh, chapter 12 and goes through chapter 16. And it's a section which deals primarily with ceremonial laws, summary of them, but there are some passages there that are really important for us to highlight because they directly relate to us today and how we function within the church. And so we'll look at that next week.